And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover, Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Antonio Ortiz. Today we're going to feature two books that will help us see if we can get a step closer to living a happier life. I recently spoke with Dr. Edward Hallowell about living overstretched and overbooked, and I also spoke with Larry Ackerman about living an identity-based lifestyle. So stay tuned. felt you worked incessantly and had no time to relax? Are you always moving but feel you're going nowhere? Are you always doing things for others but never find time to do things for yourself? Well, don't worry, you're not alone. Many of us feel the same way, and my next guest will tell us how we can gain control of our lives. Dr. Edward Hallowell is the author of Crazy Busy, Overstretched, Overbooked, and About to Snap a book that gives us strategies for living with culturally induced ADD. Dr. Hallowell is a child and adult psychiatrist and founder of the Hallowell Center for Cognitive and Emotional Health in Sudbury, Massachusetts. He's also co-author of two national bestsellers, Driven to Distraction and Answers to Distraction, both of which discuss ADD in children and adults. Dr. Hallowell is an expert at providing ways to tackle life's most difficult challenges. So I first asked Dr. Hallowell, how do we get so busy? I think we've all become uh, just much busier than we ever meant to. And sort of the unintended consequence of the progress we've made with technology, it's allowing us to do more and more. But the next thing you know, you're, you're overcommitted, overstretched, and about to snap, which is the subtitle of my book. You just said earlier that because of our world, we're meant to be just really busy. Uh, that. The, the technology uh, allows us to overcommit. It, it's, it's so seductive. We, we um, without meaning to, uh, overcommit ourselves. And in, in addition, without meaning to, we, we waste time uh, doing what I call screen sucking, sort of mindlessly sending and receiving emails, surfing the net. Uh, so, we, you know, we always had television. Well, now we throw in a new screen and uh, we waste even, even more time. It's fun. But the next thing you know, you 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 know, you wonder where your time went. Well, for this program, um, I want to delve more into identity, and it seems like your book essentially is talking about identity, right? You're trying to help people figure out what's important to them and how they can get the most out of life. Is that correct? Yes, yes absolutely, absolutely. And, and it, it's important. I mean, those things have always been important to do, but they're they're difficult to do now because the the opportunities are so many. And so you really find yourself having to prioritize and, and, and really not do things that you'd like to do, worthwhile things. And there are only so many courses you can take, committees you can serve on, businesses you can start, 
you know, meals you can prepare, restaurants you can go to, and sites you can see before you, you before they all begin to seem like drudgery because simply by their plentitude, simply because there's so many. And so in your book, you have some exercises of how people can get rid of unnecessary, I guess, tasks in their life. Yes. Right? And so one of them is just kind of prioritizing. You had to put a list of things that you absolutely necessarily had to do. Yes. All of a sudden, you have another list of things that you just enjoy doing. Right. Um, and that's really interesting to me because I've noticed that some, especially with a lot of people that I hang out with, because I feel that I kind of fall into that as well, that we end up just doing so much and then you just get lost and you don't know what you want to do anymore. You're just always on and always having to, to be somewhere. Exactly. And, and you, you, you don't really enjoy it or relish it if you're, if you're constantly feeling pressured. And you don't pay full attention to the people you're with because you're always sort of feeling pulled in another direction. I'm, I take it that this book is just all from personal experience and how you figured out how, where you want to go in life. Well, it's not only personal experience, but working with patients. You know, I, I've been uh, seeing uh, so many people uh, uh, struggling with this. That, but yeah, with my own life, absolutely. You know, I've got three kids, so I'm very active. My wife and I... And they're, you know, 17, 14, and 11, so they're still very much with us, and, and uh, we adore them. They're the center of our lives, but I also have a career as a writer, as a doctor, as a, as a speaker, a lecturer, and my wife also works as a therapist. So, uh, you know, we we juggle a lot, but, but we don't feel crazy busy. You know, we structure our lives and prioritize, you know, so so that we do what matters most, and that's the big that's the big trick to make sure you're doing what you really want to get done because you don't want to let a decade go by and you say at the end of that gosh I didn't spend time with my kids or I never started that business or I never wrote that book or I never you know sailed that the uh, sail or climbed that mountain or whatever it is that you really want to do you don't want to waste your one chance on this planet to do it yeah it's interesting in the book that you mentioned having a, uh, a glass jar with marbles yes. in it and just each marble representing a month. And um, that is really telling about how we think as as just people in general. Just I don't think about my time running out. Right. And so everyone has this idea that they're going to go forever and they have the t- all the time in the world when essentially you're just you're running out of time. Yes. And you need to figure out what you're going to you're going to do with it. What about people who don't feel they have the time? I mean, how do you get how do you get to those people? Well, I, I say to them, uh, you know, welcome to the club. I mean, everyone sort of begins this process of of taking charge of their lives by by realizing that they 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 feel they don't have the time. And what I say to them is, you really do have more time than you feel you do. And I, I sit down with them with a pencil and paper, and I say, you know, let's just look at where you spend your time. And notice, we use the same verb with time that we do we do with money: spend, mm-hmm. invest, waste. Uh, you know, and, and uh, but most people are much more aware of where their money goes than their time goes. And when you actually look at it, and you say, "Now, is this investment of your time worth it?" You know, do, do you get the payback that you would hope for? And that you'll believe me, everyone can find what I call leeches, investments of time that don't pay back, that are that are that are that suck them, that uh, deplete them. And so, what I urge people to do is eliminate those leeches. Suddenly, you'll have more time that you can spend on your lilies, what I call lilies, people or projects that repay you, that fulfill you, that satisfy you. And you do that you do that exercise. Just sit down with your spouse or with yourself, you know, waiting in an airport or something. And just go through a week. You know, how do I, how did I spend my time? Go through a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll find, you know, for sure some committee that you could get off of or 
or some so-called friend that really every time you see that person you feel bummed out, you know, and maybe you shouldn't see that person anymore, or or some business project that's just driving you nuts that maybe it's time to walk away from, you know, whatever it is, everybody's got a leech. And when you get rid of a leech, uh, and usually we're only stuck to them by, by guilt or habit, when you get rid of a leech, uh, you, gosh, you feel better. You have so much more energy. Um, and uh, you're, you're, you can then use that time and energy uh, w- with something that really matters to you. Do you ever give advice to people who want to just get rid of maybe a friend who's just a leech in their life and they feel that too guilty to absolutely that. absolutely i do it all the time i mean and it's hard you know it, it, you know people most people in this world are actually pretty nice contrary to what you'd read in the media you know it, people really don't like to hurt people and and so what i say to them is look if you feel this person is a leech the other person is probably not you know getting too much out of it either so do both of you a favor and uh you know you don't have to be cruel when you get rid of that person but just kind of let them off gently. Don't don't agree to see them as often, and, and next thing you know, they'll find someone else to to plump onto. <laughs> and uh, you know, don't feel guilty about that because you're really you're doing a favor for not only yourself but the other people that you see, because you'll be in a better frame of mind. Mm-hmm. In your book you also talk about technology and how technology, ironically, is supposed to help us get more time to hang out, you know, with friends and just be more with your family. But it kind of sucks up more time because you're all of a sudden you have a cell phone and everyone can contact you whenever and you don't really have time to yourself. I know it's so ironic that these uh, labor savers have ended up uh, uh, oftentimes uh, taking us out of the moment and, and giving us more work. And what I say there is, you know, don't don't get rid of the technology. It's wonderful. It's an incredible blessing. But just be very careful how you use it. Be very careful that you don't uh, um, uh, waste time screen sucking or uh, overspend on the net or, you know, uh, overcommit. And, and um, you know, some very simple steps that I outline in the book uh, really can put you back in control of your life and eliminate that feeling of being crazy busy. And and then modern life is better than life has ever been. I mean, it's an incredible adventure. It's a lot of fun. So um, everyone's an individual, so they all have their own uh, leeches, right. so to say. But um, And their own lilies, you know. Yes, and in in general, can you just give our listeners an idea of what are the main leeches that kind of suck the life out of everyone? Well, a a, a friend or relative that just you know is just a just a drain upon your energy, uh, a project that try as you might you can't turn it into something that's you know moving in a positive direction, um, uh, screen sucking you know the, the sort of mindless uh, uh, time wasting online. Um, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a sort of an, an addiction to stimulation, so you never really spend time thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, those are the real, real common uh, leeches, uh, where you where you waste your time, or, or worse, where you just feel depleted and used up. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of those leeches are a distraction for people who are maybe just unhappy with their lives? Sure, but they ironically only make them more unhappy. You know, so so if you come to terms with this stuff. Uh, you, you, you really can be happier. I mean, I, I'm firmly convinced that most people uh, can lead really the life of their dreams. You know, I, I really believe that. And, and uh, you don't have to be rich to do it, and you don't have to be famous to do it. In fact, a lot of rich, famous people are leading miserable lives. Mm-hmm. But what you do need to do is invest your time wisely. Do what matters most to you. Make sure the time you spend is time that repays you. You know, sure, you have to work hard, but working hard can feel good if it's at the right job. 
Mm-hmm. It can feel awful if it isn't. So it's kind of like how you are saying, how you're using ADD or culturally induced ADD for your benefit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh, I want to go into ADD. Um, I mean, because, well, there's some people who actually have ADD and that's a, that's a major problem. But sure. for most of us, um, can you go into what is it? what do you mean by culturally induced? Just you, you, because of the pace of modern life, you, you can look as if you have attention deficit disorder. You can uh, be very distractible, very uh, impulsive, very restless, you know, real craving high stimulation all the time. And, and, that, and that's not, you don't have the genetically transmitted condition. You have the culturally induced condition. Mm-hmm. And the, the treatment is not to take medication. It's to, uh, you know, turn off the electronics a little bit or, you know, spend time with a friend, you know, uh, uh, like I said, take back control mm-hmm. so that you're not run ragged. Yeah, and I guess it's culturally induced because in uh, in our society right now, you have a lot of options. Right. Right. Exactly. And uh, a friend of mine was talking to me one day and was uh, was mentioning how, you know, just her friends in third world countries where they don't really have the options seem to be happier because they have less choices. Not to, say <laughs> yeah. that, not to say that having less choices makes you happier, but... No, but it, there's a point there. I mean, you know, we have so many choices, it's agonizing to decide. You know, and I was saying, you know, this the need to prioritize uh, sort of the Chinese restaurant syndrome. There's so mm-hmm. many things on the menu. you got to pick something, and if you try to pick everything, you're going to feel really sick. If you just tuned in, that was Dr. Hallowell speaking about his book, Crazy Busy, Overstretched, Overbooked, and About to Snap. You're listening to Open Book on KPFA 94.1 FM. In order for us to be happy, we have to know what will bring us joy, but that requires really knowing who you are. What do you do if you don't know that? Well, there's one book that will help us get those answers. Larry Ackerman is the author of The Identity Code, the eight essential questions for finding your purpose and place in the world. Ackerman is a leading authority on organizational and personal identity. He's a group director for the international identity and brand consulting firm, Siegel and & Gale, and he's regarded as the pioneer in the field of identity-based management. In his first book, Identity is Destiny, Leadership and the Roots of Value Creation, Larry brought forth a revolutionary view of how identity impacts leadership and management. In his 20 20- Five-year career, Larry is a personal coach to senior executives and a consultant to their organizations. His insights help many leaders find ways to not only survive, but to flourish. I asked Larry how he started his own personal journey towards identity-based living. The backstory here uh, is that for me, identity is a very personal journey. It's far more than in some academic exercise or some even a professional pursuit. Uh, and it really it began for me, uh, as I explain in my book, when I was four years old and I was um, uh, in the hospital for eye surgery. And I was I was in the hospital, and basically what happened was that I uh, I was I remember being wheeled into the into the um, operating room on the gurney. I remember many 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 things. It's taken me a long time to do that. Uh, I remember being strapped down watching as the doctors and nurses <clears throat> sort of mulled around uh, mm-hmm. getting ready for the surgery and what happened was that I after a while began to get quite panicked as any four-year-old would uh, looked around for my parents who were not there and could not be there at the time um, based on hospital regulations and 
realized suddenly, uh, Antonio, that I was very, very much alone, to the mm-hmm. extent that any four-year-old is conscious of their own uh, feelings. And as they brought the gas mask down to my face, um, I was panicked, and I, in essence, asked myself a question, although it was unconscious, and the question was, what is so wrong with me that I must be changed from who I am? Why am I here? What, what did I do that was so bad? And ever since that experience, uh, where I really be- had this incredible moment of consci- consciousness around simply being alive, um, the whole notion of identity became the governing force in my life. That's really uh, the driver behind my, my passion and my practice. It seems like what your your anecdote really relates to a lot of people where they they feel that when something's going wrong, they want to change either their environment mm-hmm. or change themselves. Pretty much what you're saying is you can't really change yourself. You already have this yeah. identity and that you have to kind of go with it, right? Absolutely correct. Um, we're all born with the seeds of who we are in place. At the moment of conception, it is my utter conviction that our identity is formed just like we have a a genetic code, we have an identity code, the title of the book, The Identity mm-hmm. Code. And that code is formed um, uh, at the moment of conception. The seeds of who we are are there, and they are the, you know, the product of generations upon generations of uh, mixing and matching of, of um, passions and talents and skills and things uh, which make us who we are in unique combinations. So that is there, and it never changes over the course of one's life. You can change many things about your life. Mm-hmm. What you cannot do is change fundamentally who you are. And, you know, people go, that sounds very bleak to some people, but I think it's the contrary. Mm-hmm. It is a magnificent strength. It is, it is basically saying, I am who I am at, at five, and I am who I am at 50, and perhaps even 90. And yet I can change in many ways. I can use my identity that strength as a platform for engaging the world in different ways and yet always knowing who I am even during difficult, trying, uh, frustrating, and even scary periods. In your book, you had a lot of anecdotes of just people's lives and how you've learned from their experience. And there was one woman who I remember where um, I think she was, um, she worked in a financial department or something? Yes, Terry. And that you were saying that she realized that her job wasn't very fulfilling to her and that she went through this whole process and it ended up where she didn't quit her job. She ended up just changing her mission, essentially essentially for (laughs) that whole organization. I thought that was really interesting because you weren't really saying in your book that you have to change your life. You just have to kind of change the way you perceive life and how you attack problems. And a lot of the exercises, people say that, you know, your examples that they will write down that they like to do dance or they like to do things that are in movement. It doesn't mean that you have to quit and then become a dancer. I want to know, like, how did you get to that point where you didn't want people to just go off and just change their life and just do something that was kind of irrational? Yeah, I, I, I think that's such a, it's a great point. I think people, when they, when you start talking about identity issues and, you know, what am I going to do with my life and so on, you know, the more dramatic examples are the ones that are, of course, most interesting. But I think practically speaking, there are not that many of us who can decide, okay, here's who I really am. I figured this out. And now I'm going to throw away, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 years of work, and I'm going to go do something else tomorrow morning. That, mm-hmm. That's not practical. Some people can, most can't. I think the more practical 
way to approach an identity-based life, and I'm a big advocate of, of, of identity-based living, is exactly what Terry did. She, you know, she was deeply frustrated. She had a number of issues she had to wrestle with, as I write about. And when I worked with her, and we came to understand that her strengths, her identity-based strengths, were around, I believe it was discovery and freedom and movement and things, she realized that it, she could approach her work in the financial department of this particular organization in a completely different way. She could literally, finally, bring herself to work as opposed to simply doing the job. And in making that distinction, was able to re-up, if you will, uh, her relationship with her boss and even have a bigger influence on how the department, the finance department, shaped its particular mission for the larger organization. And she, you know, it made her very happy because it was, it was um, flowing from her own integrity. It was flowing from a place that she understood deeply. So it really rejuvenated her relationship with the company as opposed to forcing her to kind of walk out the door and start over. Mm -hmm. So in your book, you have eight laws of identity, and then during each chapter, you have a story about someone's life and how they affected. Um, you've noticed they're kind of growing. Into they're growing, their or even, you know, honestly, the first story about Brian, who never grew. We, we all have a choice. The choice is, number one, to get in touch with who we are at that level of identity. And, you know, that's why I give these, these exercises in the book to help people actually do this for themselves. The second choice we have is to embrace our identity and figure out how to live through it or not. And, you know, it's really up to us. Identity-based living is not fatalistic. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, this is not a form of predetermination. It's actually a form of profound freedom. When you really know who you are, um, maybe some doors close, but others open wide. And it's up to you to, to decide you're going to walk through those doors. So for your friend Brian, because you mentioned that he, um, I think he was a character who was just, I don't want to say strung out, but he did a lot of things for other people. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a lot of people kind of just get stuck in that same cycle. They do. Um, the, the story about Brian, um, which is personally meaningful to me because he was a friend from, from college, was here's a guy who, in essence, made his living, so to speak, uh, pleasing other people, bending over backwards to make sure that you're happy and I'm happy and his boss is happy and everybody's happy. The only person who wasn't really happy was Brian. And Brian had a drinking problem. As far as I know, Brian still does. Um, and he was simply not willing to look inside and to at least, you know, acknowledge his challenges and to take the steps necessary to um, overcome them. You know, I'm not here. I can't force people to make change. I can only uh, offer you the ways in which to do it in a healthy kind of a way. In your book, I take it that you have gone through each each step. I have. In fact, my ability to write about this both spiritually and practically is the result of years of my own struggles mm -hmm. going through this. Um, from the time I was in my, you know, consciously in my late 20s, mid-late 20s, right through my early 40s, um, this was my passion, it was my mission, it remains my mission. And basically what I've done is, uh, to use an expression, 
um, reverse engineer my own experience and say, what is it I've had to take myself through that has worked? And how can I articulate and package it in a way that I think it will actually help other people mm-hmm. for whom, you know, these these issues are, are difficult at best to get their hands around. I mean, the questions, as you know, the, the book, the subtitle of the book is The Eight Essential Questions for Finding Your Purpose and Place in the World. And each of those questions, um, when you answer them in sequence, is how you crack your identity code. But most people... You know, when you say, who am I, or you ask the question, what makes me special, or where am I going, or, um, you know, what is my message? These are big questions we ask ourselves almost rhetorically because we don't know the answer. You kind of mention how we have so many options that it makes it really difficult to figure out what we want or who right. we are. And I've noticed that with just, you're kind of pushed with this idea that, you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you, you want to be. Correct. And then it really frustrates people because they can't get there or it's just it's not pretty much in, in their identity code, you could say. Absolutely correct. That's the opening of the book, and I think mm-hmm. it's an important point. Uh, it's what I term the agony of the modern person. We are, as you say, um, faced since the time we're children. You know, we, just, we just absorb this notion that you can be whatever you want. The world is your oyster. Um, go figure it out. You know, if you work hard, stay the course. Um, you know, you can be the first American female president. You can be an astronaut, a toe dancer, a bridge builder. You can be whatever you want, but you can't. You can't. And we take in this knowledge as though it's true. And yet, when you try, sometimes you don't know why. Why am I not making? Why isn't this not working out? Why don't I like what this feels like? Because it's not necessarily in sync with who you are at the very core of your being. Um, I mean, life has order, Antonio. Life has order because we all have these identities which, in effect, do two things simultaneously. They reveal tremendous potential. Each of us has enormous potential, and that may be manifested in big, fancy ways, or it may be manifested in very modest ways, but it's there. Mm-hmm. The other thing that our identities reveal is the limitations we have as human beings. You cannot be anything, but you have more potential than you know. So when you say you can't be anything, you're saying that it's not like you're saying that physically you can't do this work. Mm-hmm. It's just that you Correct. won't be happy. Yeah, it's not natural. It's forced. Um, and, and there's no, you know, why live your life that way? Maybe, you know, because your parents said, you know, you should be a lawyer because we have lawyers in our family or you have a, you know, three generations of carpenters or bricklayers. So, you know, that you're going to be a bricklayer or you're going to be a, a dancer or a military person. You know, we, we take in this knowledge as though it, it's gospel. And then when you, you know, you work <laughs> to accomplish it, you go, why doesn't this feel better? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a reason why. It's not who you are. People think, you know, that change is, everything is changing around them. They have to change. You suggested this earlier. Um, and I guess I want to impress upon people that identity represents, there's a kind of paradox in an identity-based life. And that is the idea of changing from a changeless foundation. We all need to accommodate others. We all need to get along in the world. We all need to find our purpose and our place in this world. But the way to do that is not by reacting to other people. It is by understanding who you are at your core 
mm-hmm. articulating that in very clear language, which is, again, what I try and do here, uh, help people to do, and then assessing, you know, making decisions about what to do and what not to do, what jobs to take, what jobs to avoid, what people to hang out with, which people to avoid, friends, uh, family, lovers, partners. There's an entire range of decisions that one should make based upon who they are that will make you a far happier person than if you simply try to respond to what everybody says that they need. And that was Larry Ackerman, author of The Identity Code, The Eight Essential Questions for Finding Your Purpose and Place in the World. So if you're interested in the two books featured today, you can get more information for Crazy Busy, Overstretched, Overbooked, and About to Snap at www.drhallowell.com. And for The Identity Code, you can go to www.theidentitycode.com. Now that brings us to the end of the show. I want to give special thanks to Amelia Gonzalez, Jin Lei, and Michael Manicheri for dealing with my identity-based, crazy busy lifestyle. And I want to thank you for tuning in to Open Book. I am your host, Antonio Ortiz. First and foremost, thank you. Thanks to everyone who made a donation to KPFA during our recent spring fund drive. And for those of you who think it's too late to make a donation, remember, you can pledge securely online at kpfa.org. You'll find over 300 thank you gifts to choose from, from books, CDs, DVDs, 